Hey everybody, this is Ben Bowman. Welcome back to another episode of The Oregon Bridge. I think the big issue that is on a lot of people's minds related to decriminalization right now relates to public use. A couple months ago, city council unanimously passed what's being called a trigger ban. It's pro-recovery, I think, to create these environments where folks are gonna be less triggered. Also, continuing to talk about this openly has ripple effects that pay off and help people avail themselves to the resources they need to get help. Folks, today we were very excited to talk to Tony Morse. Tony is a candidate for the new Portland City Council. He's running in District 4, which is most of the west side and a little bit of southeast Portland. And Tony is approaching his run in a very specific way. He's running as what he calls the recovery candidate. He is in recovery from drinking alcohol and hasn't had a drink. I think he's coming up on seven years. And he also works in his day job for Oregon Recovers, which is an advocacy group that basically works to expand Oregon's ability to treat people struggling with addiction. Although I'll say, as Tony mentions in this episode, he speaks only for himself in this podcast and not for his employer. So it's a great episode. We'll talk a little bit about Tony's professional experience. He's an attorney, went to law school, worked at a big firm, and then has sort of ventured into real estate and then into political advocacy. And now as a candidate, it's a very interesting story. And then we spend a lot of time talking about the big policy issues facing Portland, and in particular, Measure 110, housing, homelessness, and how those things intersect. And Tony's got some novel ideas on how the city could address the addiction crisis that I think all of us see as being a huge problem. And then we talk a little bit about what kind of candidate he is, how he's talking about himself, what it's like running in this new sort of experimental form of government where, you know, it's multi-member districts and, you know, there's these fundraising constraints, but also opportunities. So it's an interesting discussion. We touch on some hot topics that I think folks will find interesting. I will say before we jump into the interview, we will certainly not be able to interview every candidate for Portland City Council on this podcast, but we do want to talk to some folks and inform our listeners a little bit about what the conversation is looking like in Portland, how different candidates are approaching it. Tony was the first to reach out and ask to come on. And so we were happy to have him on. And I think he is a genuinely interesting candidate who's approaching this in a very specific way. We're in conversations with some other candidates who are interested in coming on. We don't want to become too Portland City Council focused in a race where there's, I think we mentioned on the podcast, some people are saying there'll be at least 100 people running for all these city council seats. So we won't do 100 interviews, but we will do some more. If you or someone you know is running for Portland City Council and you think you would be a an interesting interview on this podcast. Feel free to reach out and we will do our best to accommodate. But with all that being said, thank you for listening to this podcast and enjoy this week's interview with Tony Morse. Now that the legislative session is over, it's time for Oregon's activists, candidates, and political committees to turn their attention to the 2024 elections. With government regulation of political activities becoming more complicated nearly every year, and with political actors increasingly initiating complaints and litigation to achieve political goals, having experienced legal counsel has become critical to success in the political arena. Harang Long PC has represented clients involved in candidate and ballot measure elections for decades. To learn more about Harang Long's political law practice, check out our website at harang.com. That's www.harrang.com. 
www.thepodcastmaker.com. All right, Tony Morris, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Ben. I'm really excited to be here and really appreciate the invitation. Absolutely. We're excited to have you. So we'll talk about Portland City Council. We'll talk about the experience of running for office. But let's talk a little bit about how you arrived at this place in your career. You now work for Oregon Recovers as a lobbyist. We should make clear at the beginning that you are not speaking for Oregon Recovers today, correct? Correct. Here on behalf of myself and my campaign for Portland City Council and not in my capacity as policy and advocacy director for Oregon Recovers. We just did an interview with Metro Councilor Christine Lewis, and she, like me, has been in the Oregon politics space like since she started, since she graduated from Oregon politics. Your path is interesting and a, a little more non-conventional. Can you describe how you went from sort of law school to real estate to politics and policy and what that journey was like for you? Sure, would love to. So just to kind of illustrate how different my path has been for a lot of folks who wind up working in politics and Oregon is. During the last election cycle, I worked as a field organizer for the Democratic Party of Oregon coordinated campaign. And most of my coworkers were nearly half my age. I'm 42 years old. And a lot of my coworkers were in their early 20s and fresh out of college. I joke with folks sometimes, I was like the grisly old veteran you see in those <laughs> World War II movies. It was definitely a different pathway for me than a lot of my teammates. But I am a lawyer by training, went to college. I actually went to college with Oregon Speaker of the House, Dan Rayfield. We were classmates at Western Oregon University. I finished in 2003. And okay. at the time, I wasn't entirely sure what I was supposed to be doing with myself. So I worked as a server, cook, and bartender in brew pubs for a couple of years. And then over the course of that span of time, I figured out I wanted to be an attorney. I served on a jury and thought, mm-hmm. this is really interesting. And this is the kind of work I could see myself doing. So I wound up moving to Boston in 2005. Mm -hmm. I attended New England School of Law, now known as New England Law Boston, and finished in 2008. Came back to Portland for a job with a law firm, Bullivanthauser Bailey, which at the time was a much larger commercial litigation firm than it is now. They've contracted quite a bit since I departed in 2010, but as a commercial litigation associate, I was working on everything from serious personal injury, wrongful death, to a lot of work where I guess in a general way, you could say it was very wealthy individuals involved in high dollar disputes. And I would do everything from take depositions and interview witnesses to do law and motions, a lot of research and writing. But anyway, to sprinkle in some... Before you go there, so there's a lot of the like college-age students, interns in the Capitol, people who work on campaigns, who are interested in politics, think about law school. They think they might want to go to law school. Sometimes maybe not quite sure what they want to do with the law degree. What is your advice for those folks about whether or not to pursue a law degree and what it adds and the costs and all that kind of thing? Yeah, that's a great question. And I would say that's not a decision to be taken lightly. It is a substantial commitment in terms of time and cost. And for me, it was relocating 
across the country. I will say, as someone who now works in policy and political spaces, the experience in education, I do find quite helpful when you're reading legislation and you're trained to read it in a way that you acquire during your legal education, both in terms of analysis and speed. And one thing you really get good at in law school and practicing law is kind of taking apart complicated information, which is a lot of legislative work, right? And you can break it down into these units that are easier to kind of convey and explain to other stakeholders. If you really are certain you want to work in policy, I don't think it's essential. When I went to law school, it wasn't because I wanted to get into politics or policy. It's because I thought I wanted to be a trial lawyer for my entire career. Well, that's what I was going to ask you. So you come back, you mm -hmm. get the job that you thought you wanted. Was it right. what you expected, what you hoped? Did it not meet your expectations? Why the transition out of the field? Sure. You know, the billable hour model, let's start there. We all are taught about the billable hour model in law school. And for those not familiar, any of your listeners who might be considering legal careers, your time throughout the entire day is tracked to the 10th of an hour. So that means every six minutes you are writing a billing entry. So phone call with Ben, point, you know, six minutes, email Ben, 12 minutes. And that is a, it can be kind of a grind to put it plainly. There are other days where your billing entries are not as complicated. Maybe you're at a deposition or a hearing and it's four hours here, three hours for a mediation session, et cetera. But it was a demanding lifestyle, and that was what I expected. But the wrinkle, I think, for me was that I started working in 2008, right when the financial crash was happening. Mm -hmm. And ordinarily, in a law firm setting, there's no shortage of work. But my class of big firm graduates in 2008 and this is across the country, we were really, I think, short of work for new lawyers to do. And there was across the country layoffs, folks who thought that they had big firm gigs lined up, had to go on and find other things to do. I survived that uh, ordeal, but it was certainly a complicating factor when you're trying to figure out how to practice law, establish relationships with partners who are supposed to be feeding you work. And just that kind of uncertainty, you're wondering what's going to happen, you know, is, is another financial firm going to collapse? And is that going to send shockwaves throughout our industry? You know, where I went, uh, going back to your question, my path out of law is actually more personal. It's not industry specific. So I met someone to whom I am now married and... <laughs> She was entering her fourth year of medical school at OHSU here in Portland. And right about the time we figured out, hey, this is like a serious thing, she was coming up on when fourth year medical students find out where they're going to match for residency. And uh -huh. her plan, of course, and preference was to stay at OHSU. But lo and behold, she matched at the University of Utah and we decided together that we wanted to stay geographically proximate or together, I guess. And I made the decision to resign from the firm and I followed her to Salt Lake. We were there for about a year and her preference was always to be at OHSU. And towards the end of that 12 month period, a position in her specialty psychiatry opened up at OHSU and she was able to 
lateral in, I came back. And at that time, the legal market in Portland was not great. And the firm I had left was going through a transitionary period, I guess you could say. It's a much smaller firm today than it was when I started. Going back there was not going to be an option. So ultimately, I wound up as a judicial law clerk because that was something I had never got to experience before. And I thought, what a great way to do something I didn't do because I was so focused on getting into a big firm. And it would be this great opportunity to platform back into practice when I was ready. You were clerking, um, just from reading your LinkedIn, you were clerking for two different judges and the work was in adjacent to or in, involved with drug courts. Is that right? Yeah. So the first judge I was hired by, Judge Eric Block, was the judge for the STARTS court program. And START is an acronym. It stands for Success Through Accountability, Restitution, and Treatment. Hmm. And it is a intensive probationary court. So the participants in START court are folks who have been convicted of property crimes. And that can be anything from identity theft to burglary unauthorized use of a vehicle. And the one thing they all have in common is that substance use disorder or addiction is a common denominator. It's folks who struggle with addiction and wind up engaging in property crimes to finance day-to-day life and their addiction. So the idea is that we get folks in this court and they have access to a broad range of resources, including treatment. So they get to work with a counselor. They have a probation officer who has a specialized caseload who is very closely involved with them meeting all the requirements of their probation so that they attend treatment, they remain substance-free, they remain engaged in community service. And it is a great opportunity to provide to folks who might otherwise have to do some custody time to get the tools they need to better manage living with addiction and become productive members of society. And I got to see a lot of successes up close and personal. So you write about this on your website. You're pretty open about being a recovery candidate. At what point in your personal journey is this experience as a law clerk? Like, are you already in recovery at that point or you're you're not yet? I'm not yet. You know, that was something that happened for me a few years later that Mm. um, actually dovetailed with the 2016 election. Oh, really? uh, Yeah. My story with uh, politics and recovery really kind of intersect in a way that I think makes me feel like I've come full circle since when I started on this journey. Do you mind telling the story? No, not at all. I mean, just so, and we've we've chatted generally about this before. I am someone in long-term recovery for me personally. That means I've I've not had a drink since January of 2017, so right after the election, and I'm coming up on my seven-year recovery birthday. Uh, wow. Very excited. Congratulations. Thank you. And that, you know, I was... I was struggling right around late 2016. And I think the impact for me, uh, one impact of the 2016 election was that I started to struggle more. I was like a lot of people not happy with how the presidential election went that year and struggled to understand how 
that happens. But to be clear, I think that where I was heading personally, I was going to get to a point where I needed to ask for help anyway. I think it's maybe possible that that election outcome hastens that process along a little bit. But, um, you know, sometimes folks will talk about reaching bottom. I know that's not everybody's favorite language, but one way I do like to talk about it is reaching a point where I asked for help and did what was suggested. And mm. when I reached that point, I really made a pivot about how I wanted to live and was intentional about approaching every aspect of my life. And that meant a recovery program that for me personally is abstinence-based. Um, I am abstinent because it works for me. And as, you know, to the points I was making about how there's intersection between recovery and politics, the more I was able to kind of get myself reset, I guess you could say, I spent more time reflecting on how can I be of service to others? The approach to recovery I was in really emphasized service. And there's this um, remark I heard Pete Buttigieg make once that, that really still resonates with me is, and I believe in making myself useful. And being in recovery, a big part of that for me is finding ways to do that. Friends, family, and my community. And ultimately, Commissioner, Labor Commissioner Christina Stevenson is someone I know since my law clerk days. Um, oh, really? Yeah, she uh, was judicial law clerk for Judge Litzenberger and our courtrooms were right around the corner. And we would chat in between court sessions and became friends. And in 2019, she decided to run for the Democratic nomination for House District 33. And I think like a lot of folks up until that point, politics felt almost inaccessible to me. Like it's mm -hmm. something that I paid a lot of attention to, but I didn't know a lot of people necessarily involved. And I think I was one of those folks that was like, well, how does one even get involved in the political process? So for me, this personal connection made it really easy to reach out and go have coffee with her and say, this is amazing. I know what a great person you are and how smart you are. I want to help. So that kind of put me on this path to managing her social media, crafting written content. And the more I did it, the more it got me kind of hooked. And fast forward a few years later, I wound up as a paid campaign staffer for the DPO. So started very much just a volunteer who couldn't stay away and it turned into paid work. That's awesome. That's a great story. And the difference between you and many campaign volunteers is you didn't start by saying, I want to help you, but I don't want to do any door knocking or phone calling, <laughs> which is usually where it starts. Okay. So you work on Christina's primary campaign. I think you work on a couple additional campaigns. You become a paid field director. You then get hired as a lobbyist for Oregon Recovers. When do you decide you're going to run yourself and sort of flip the script and become a candidate rather than just a, a campaign staffer or volunteer? And why did you make that decision? Sure. And I, I think the more I have done this work, I kind of imagine it as like an arc. I, you know, volunteer, increasingly more involved volunteer roles, paid campaign work. And getting to work in the process of helping people that you really believe in get elected. And then 
you know, Tinicotex election. It was this really intense effort. It was a very close election. And getting to be a part of that and then be in Salem last session and lobbying on policy areas that she campaigned on, behavioral health is a big priority for her. You start to see the connection between knocking that door, getting someone elected, and then being more involved in the policy aspect. And I think for me personally, I am seeing the next component of this arc personally is to go from policy influencer to policy maker. And I think that those of us who do this work and feel personally connected are just always looking for additional opportunities to advance causes that we care a lot about. And with regard to Portland and this race for Portland City Council, Portland, I think most would agree with the statement that the city is experiencing an addiction crisis. Mm-hmm. When I talk about it with folks, my perspective is that it's influencing every part of daily life from homelessness and public safety to community livability and reputation of our city. And we are going to have this new form of government in Portland with a council of 12. And I think it's essential, really, that somebody with some lived experience around addiction and recovery and also some policy expertise and experience around the legislative process has a seat in the room where decisions are being made. And especially with this new form of government in Portland, our hybrid model now, the commissioners are legislators and they run bureaus, but under this new system that we're going to see go into effect in January of 25, it's going to be a strictly legislative model. So we really need folks who understand how policy moves through the legislative process, can build coalitions to advance the policy that needs to get passed and stop the policy that we'd be better off without. So we'll talk in a second about some of the big ticket items that the city of Portland is wrestling with and the state is wrestling with. But first, which district are you running in? And can you describe for listeners what section of Portland you'll be running in? Sure. So I am running for Portland City Council District 4. And the geography in my district is the entire west side. In that regard, District 4 is the only district that includes the west side and a component of the east side. It also includes Eastmoreland, Westmoreland, Selwood, Reed, and a sliver of the Woodstock neighborhood where my family and I live. These are very large districts, a lot of voters in those districts. Okay, so let's start with, you describe yourself as a recovery candidate, and you discuss the addiction crisis pretty prominently in your materials. Let's start with 110. Obviously, the city is going to be operating within the state's legal framework. Measure 110 is expected to be a hot topic in the short session. Obviously, the city doesn't have a direct role necessarily on what where the state lands or voters land on a ballot measure related to Measure 110. But what are your personal thoughts on Measure 110 as someone who hopes to serve at the local government level? Sure. That's a great question. And 110, I think, is on everybody's minds right now. So I think it's important to unpack 110 a little bit and make sure that folks understand exactly what it did and how it operates. And there are two primary components. There's the decriminalization piece 
And as a practical matter, what that means is 110 decriminalized certain quantities of certain types of drugs. And there is also the funding component that is, in my experience, not discussed as much as the criminalization piece. And in that regard, 110 reallocated to a significant degree how cannabis tax revenue is spent in Oregon. So some, but not all, but to a prominent extent of cannabis tax revenue in Oregon now, now goes into the Measure 110 account and pays for things like your mentor services, sober housing. There are some harm reduction services, of course, is a, a hot topic. And that money has, I would argue, made really important strides in this crisis, especially with when we talk about peer mentors, folks who are struggling respond well, and I'm speaking from experience here, to folks who have walked in their shoes and understand what they're struggling with. And some of that money goes to organizations that specialize in outreach with peers and help folks navigate addiction and get into recovery and maintain recovery. So to that extent, I think the funding component is something that ought to be protected. And I think when you look at polling, there's the public sentiment is supportive of that as well. But on a related note, I think it's also important to point out that cannabis money can pay for some things, but not all things. And that is because while cannabis is legal at the state level, it remains illegal at the federal level. So as a practical matter, that means we can't do Medicaid matching with cannabis money. So for example, if somebody's on OHP and they need what we might describe as clinical treatments, they're going to be ineligible to receive Measure 110 funding for those treatment services. But the other side of that coin is Measure 110 pays for all these important services like peers over housing that Medicaid can't. Now, back to decriminalization, mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. I think the big issue that is on a lot of people's minds related to decriminalization right now relates to public use. And we see it in District 4, we see it downtown. It is all too common, unfortunately, for folks to see open air fentanyl use. Earlier this year, I was out with my second grade son and we were taking a trip to Powell's Books and on our way back to the car, we saw someone with a square of tinfoil or aluminum foil and they were either about to use the foil or they had just finished. And it's it's concerning and it's it's scary when you walk up on something like that. And I think that folks very reasonably in Portland want public use under control. And to the extent there's interplay between what is happening at the city level and what Measure 110 has caused a lot of discussion about with regard to public use is that a couple months ago, city council unanimously passed that what's being called a trigger ban for public use. And some context around that is there's current state law that prohibits local jurisdictions from regulating public drug use. So this resolution passed by Portland City Council says that 
if and when that law is modified, we are going to enact a public use ban. And they went one step beyond that and passed a resolution directing their Office of Government Relations to start lobbying the legislature to amend that law in such a way so that they can see that public use ban go into effect. Let me ask you this. So a lot of the solutions for Oregon's addiction crisis will necessarily need to come from the state level. There's also a role to play, I think, a large role for the counties to play, and particularly Multnomah County. We talked to Christine Lewis about the homelessness services bond, which some of those expenditures, I think, are related to this. What is the city's job here? And what does a recovery candidate at the city level specifically mean? Like, what do you want to do? What do you think the city needs to do that it isn't doing to address this crisis? That's a great question. And I would start by saying that addiction knows no jurisdictional boundaries. I mean, it's so significant. I believe that nobody in Portland has been untouched by the addiction crisis in some way. Either it's something they've experienced personally, or they have a friend, a family member, or they work downtown and it's, it's very visible to them. But in terms of the role that different layers of government play, there is, I think, some important asymmetry and needs between the city and the county. The city, we have first responders, police, Portland Street Response, Portland Fire, who are quite often the ones interacting primarily and most frequently with folks who are very acutely ill and struggling. Whereas the county, that is where so much of our local behavioral health money and resources are cited. So in that regard, I think we have currently this kind of fragmented and siloed approach where everyone is doing what they can, but they're not necessarily coordinating with one another. It's left hand, right hand. So to me, it makes sense to create a coordinated office of addiction response and have players from both the city and the county working under the same roof. So their efforts are coordinated and consolidated, and there's not a competition or a lack of communication in how this response is executed. So that, I think, creates an opportunity to identify different funding buckets and, you know, to the extent federal dollars are available, county dollars And ultimately, I envision an office like this being run by a chief recovery officer whose primary mission is really to focus on addiction. Because like I said, there's so much interplay between this issue and all the other challenges that our communities are dealing with right now. That's interesting because I'm thinking of the Joint Office of Homelessness Services as a sort of like similar structure between the city of Portland and Multnomah County. Obviously had some of its own set of problems that I think they're navigating. But how do you avoid recreating silos, right? Because so there's there is an interplay between the addiction crisis and the homelessness crisis. But there's a lot of people who are struggling with addiction who live in a home. And so like, how do you how would you think about how it would operate and how it would interplay with like the homelessness and housing crises that are maybe adjacent to the addiction crisis? Right. So to the extent that there is overlap between homelessness and addiction, one thing I talk a lot about is the need for recovery housing. 
And recovery housing, for your listeners who are not quite sure what that means in the context of housing services, when I talk about recovery housing, I'm talking about sober living spaces. There is data out there that makes clear that folks who struggle with addiction, who spend time in some sober living arrangements, have a much greater success rate for staying in recovery over longer periods of time. It is, I think, a really great tool to focus on right now for a few reasons. Number one, you see this stat a lot. I'm sure it's something you're familiar with. Oregon, unacceptably, ranks 50th in access to treatment. And meanwhile, we rank second in percentage of our residents who have a substance use disorder. So there's a huge deficit there we need to focus on how to bridge. And... When folks need residential care, residential treatment, we unfortunately currently lack the amount of inpatient treatment beds that we need. So recovery housing, sober living, I think is this building block where we can craft a viable substitute by pairing it with outpatient treatment. Mm -hmm. So a lot of folks, when they come to the point in their journey, they really do early on need a sober living environment where they're not going to be around people drinking or openly using drugs. And that is why this inpatient treatment model, folks go and live in like a dorm and they attend treatment, receive the services they need. But when those beds aren't available, we can get folks into recovery housing beds and have them participate in outpatient treatments. It's significantly cheaper. Inpatient treatment can run $20,000 for a a 30 month, or I'm sorry, 30 day, one month program. And right. And comparatively outpatient treatment, we can get folks engaged for 60, 90 days. I mean, depending on who the provider is for around $5,000, give or take. And then recovery housing beds are available in Multnomah County, anywhere from $520-ish ballpark to $725-ish. And that rate changes, but you can check it out on MACBO has a website for what recovery housing is is going for. So it's it's a cost-effective way to address this deficit that we have in terms of treatment beds. So other ways I, I see the city taking a leadership role, I actually was happy to see this public use ban proposal. I think that when we have an environment where folks are openly using drugs, it's triggering for folks to walk through downtown and seeing folks using drugs, especially if they're early on in their recovery or sobriety. Speaking personally, there's a reason early on I stayed away from large groups of people where most, if not everyone, was drinking. I stayed away from bars. It's pro-recovery, I think, to create these environments where folks are going to be less triggered. And also, Just continuing to talk about this openly in a destigmatizing way has ripple effects that pay off and help people avail themselves to the resources they need to get healthy. And that means talking about addiction and um, maybe not using terminology like substance abuse. I mean, the word abuse can mean different things to different people, right? So I think just creating this culture of being a pro-recovery city 
is going to help remove stigma and help people get that step closer to where they want to go or mm -hmm. need to go rather. One final question on this before we transition. You mentioned harm reduction. This is a very uh, one of the more controversial components of Measure 110. And there's these conversations, I think, adjacent to public consumption ban about safe use sites. Do you right. have thoughts? And I think my, I have no idea, but my guess is like this local jurisdictions or counties would likely be in charge of authorizing or establishing these if they're going to be permitted. Do you have thoughts on like broad thoughts on this harm reduction and then specifically the sort of public use sites? Sure, I do. So for starters, I would say harm reduction is a tool. It's not an outcome. And when we talk about harm reduction, what we're talking about is making use safer. And if folks who are struggling with addiction are going to use drugs, we of course want it to be as safe as possible. We don't want people who are ill, and that's what addiction is. It's a chronic long-term illness. We don't want them harming themselves. But too much emphasis on harm reduction, I think, at least in the way we talk about the crisis, has reduced the amount of space for talking about the need to reduce use, right? Mm -hmm. We want folks to use drugs less. And the community has a reasonable interest in policy that serves that goal. The Lund Report had an article, I think, in July comparing the amount of 911 overdose calls for the months of May and June this year to the months of May and June in the year prior. And those calls have doubled. And wow. when we have first responders who are spending so much of their time and resources responding to overdoses, which they need to, these are life-threatening emergencies, but it takes away bandwidth and their ability to do other things. Heart attack calls, car accidents, property crimes. Um, when we talk about the addiction crisis, and the way I want folks to think about it is, it strains all of our systems. And so we do better as a community if we, as a whole, in all kinds of different areas, if we get it under control. Harm reduction is a life-saving tool and it does play a role in addressing the addiction crisis. Needle exchange programs save lives. They prevent the spread of hepatitis C and HIV. To the extent that um, we are going to engage in outreach with harm reduction services being the reason for that outreach, um, contacting folks with drug supplies, to the extent that's going on, those interactions also, in my opinion, need to be used as an opportunity to do some outreach for encouraging folks to get into recovery. Every encounter is an opportunity to have a conversation with someone and say, have you thought about trying to get sober? Do you want to try something different? Do you know where to go if you need to detox and you're concerned about being able to do it safely. I am not someone who thinks you hand out drug supplies and the conversation is over because recovery, while it is about meeting people where they're at, it's also about not leaving people there. And just as when I was shown some different approaches and tools for how I 
might want to live differently that has really benefited me. I think we really need to be doing that with these types of encounters as well. Mm. What about these safe use sites idea? The argument that you hear is like, if you ban public consumption, what people will say is you're criminalizing homelessness because these folks are homeless. They don't have their own property and they're addicted to drugs. And so if you say you can't consume it publicly, you're basically saying if you're wealthy, you can do it on your in your own property, but you can't if you're homeless. So therefore, we should have these sort of public publicly owned or operated, I guess. I don't exactly know how it would work, but safe use sites where people could use safely as a sort of, I think, harm reduction mechanism. How do you think about that? Well, I think one thing that is really important to be mindful of is that, and you hear this in behavioral health spaces, these drugs are different. I mean, Mm -hmm. what we're really struggling with right now is this new meth that is putting folks into um, episodes of psychosis and then also fentanyl. And fentanyl is about 50 to 100 times more potent than morphine is. You can put a lethal, you can fit a lethal dose of fentanyl on the tip of a pencil. How fentanyl is typically consumed and what we see in Portland is that it's smoked. It's often put onto a square foil. It's heated from underneath and, and inhaled through some kind of a straw. So this model of safe consumption sites, I think when folks think about them, they're thinking more about safe injection sites, right? Uh-huh. So when you have large groups of people smoking a very potent and lethal drug, that's going to be difficult to manage from like a administration and a supervised point of view from the folks who are going to be tasked with working there. How do you create a safe working environment for folks who are going to be in or around secondhand fentanyl smoke? You know, I think that there is a discussion to be had about the role that a public use ban might impact how folks use when they're in public. And one criticism I hear is that it puts folks into hiding. But I think Mm -hmm. the way to address that is to change the way we do outreach. And again, this is a role for peers and where they can really be doing key work and it's being able to do effective outreach in a way that meets folks where they're at. And again, if they're not visibly out in public, that doesn't mean we can't develop strategies for engaging them. So I think that it's not an easy issue, Ben, and I'll be straight with you, but um, public use, I think, has reached a point for our community where we have to get real about it. And it is impacting public safety. Folks aren't comfortable going downtown because they're not comfortable with going down the streets, being adjacent to secondhand fentanyl smoke. I think that's right. I've been, when I've been thinking about this, it's like people, one question is like, does this policy choice help address the addiction crisis? And then other questions which are related but different are, Does this address the reputational problem Portland has? Does this address the economic challenges that downtown businesses are facing? Does it like, there's a lot of challenges that are related and not every policy mechanism is going to address all of them, but they all need to be attended to in some way. 
Agree. And this dialogue around the addiction crisis so often turns into these opposing viewpoints where you have folks on one end of the spectrum saying the addiction crisis is strictly a public health crisis. It's, it shouldn't be treated as a public safety issue. And their counterpart on the other end of the spectrum talks about this being a public safety emergency. And I am someone who believes quite resolutely that the addiction crisis is both. It's mm. a public health and a public safety crisis. And mm. we have to strike this balance between different role players and their responsibility and how we respond. We are not going to arrest our way out of this crisis, certainly mm. not. But on the other hand, I don't think we can say to ourselves, there is no public safety component to things like open drug use and open drug dealing. We have to get real about the role that each space plays in addressing this emergency. Well, thank you for the deep dive on a really challenging policy. That was useful for me and I hope for listeners too. Before we break, I want to ask you a couple more sort of like broader questions about running. I asked Eric Zimmerman a version of this, where it's basically like, what kind of leadership does Portland need? Since you're running, my version of that question is like, what leadership style will you bring to the table? And for framing, there's going to be a ton of candidates running Mm -hmm. and some are going to be super ideological. Some are going to be aligning themselves like I'm a business interest candidate. Some are going to, you know, like there's a million ways to frame yourself as a candidate. Some will be collaborators and trying to build bridges. Like what skill set and leadership style are you going to bring to the table and offer to voters as like, this is the type of counselor I'll be? That's a great question. So I don't know if you ever read Josh Barrow, but he talks about sometimes He's a pundit and very much a centrist. And (laughs) he talks about the differing approaches of two Democratic presidents, President Obama and President Biden. Mm -hmm. And President Obama would release his priorities. Republicans in Congress would release theirs. And then President Obama would take to the airwaves and make a case as to why Republicans ought to change their priorities. And what we have seen with the Biden White House is they release their priorities. Republican, his Republican counterparts in Congress release theirs. And the approach has been to look for the overlap. And that mm. is where I think government can really deliver the best results and outcomes for the public who has elected them to serve. I describe myself as center left, and I have a center-right friends, and there is a lot of stuff we have disagreements about. But um, we are both very much invested in fixing Oregon's addiction crisis, and we are able to compartmentalize those disagreements and really focus and align our efforts on the things we do agree on. And I think when we are talking about a city council of 12, we are going to need folks who are able to do just that, who are going to be able to focus on these areas of agreement and move the ball forward, to use a football analogy, and pick up first downs as we solve problems. I think what Portlanders and really American voters as a whole are frustrated with right now is this the opposite, where those elected to serve are focusing on the differences. And we wind up in 
ideological or dogmatic shouting matches and then nothing gets done. So in that regard, I, like I mentioned, worked as a field organizer for the Democratic Party of Oregon, proud Democrat, proud of the work I did to elect Governor Kotak and Commissioner Stevenson. I was out knocking on doors, talking about reproductive rights in the cold, freezing rain till my hands were purple. I am very pro-labor. I've already been endorsed by a number of labor organizations. So that's where I am in terms of ideology, but as a practical matter, and maybe this has to do with almost a decade in real estate, and also as an attorney, it's finding the areas of alignment with folks that you may not necessarily agree with and, and putting those into play and solving problems. So I, I really like the framing there and I like how much you've thought about it. I was just talking to someone a couple days ago where they're like, everyone can agree that the previous form of government in the city of Portland was not working. The open question right now is whether this form of government will work <laughs> or at least get us a little closer to functional and ability to solve problems. And I agree that there's going to have to be a tipping point of counselors with that kind of mindset where nobody's going to get everything they want. Nobody's going to get everything that some of the major stakeholders who supported them wanted. But can you make something functional out of, you know, I guess, what do you need? Seven? Seven votes will be the new majority? Yes. Yes, that's that's where I was going next is this new form of government is all about counting to seven. And yeah. Council of 12, seven votes carries the day in terms of passing policy. And the mayor lacks a veto power, lacks veto power under this new form of government and casts a vote only in event of a tie. So really, it is crucial to elect folks who can, like I said, find areas of agreement and can't votes get to seven <laughs> yeah so last question in our last couple minutes here and don't give away your you know deep top secret campaign playbook here but how do you campaign for this office you've got a bajillion other people running i say exactly like i think there's over 10 people running or there certainly will be someone said they expected over 100 total city council candidates when all is said and done which strikes me as plausible and also like mind-boggling so you've got a ton of people you're running against you're in a gigantic district where I imagine there's got to be, what, a couple hundred thousand people or something like that. And it's not like vote for me only. It's like you're going to vote for up to three people. And like, maybe yeah. I'm not your first choice, but I'd love for you to like, tell us about the experience of campaigning in this new experiment in democracy that Portland is uh, taking us down. It's interesting for someone who has worked on and around several campaigns, but has never been a candidate before to now take the role of candidate. And a lot of it is doing outreach and having conversations from folks at organizations who are interested in policy to your friends and neighbors. What are you thinking about? What's important to you? I think this far out from an election, because there is no primary in this race, we are going to have a single election for council in November. Right now, it is as much about listening to folks as it mm. is about everything else. So it's it's a lot of getting different perspectives on, on what folks are most concerned with. And folks are not necessarily even thinking about city council right right now we're going to have our primary in oregon 
in May, and there's going to be some significant races there. Um, we have a district attorney's race. We have some congressional seats, and we have a presidential election that, of course, a lot of people are thinking a lot about. So right now, it's a lot of outreach, conversations, listening, fundraising calls. Oh, the worst part. <laughs> so for, for your listeners who are not familiar with the City of Portland's small donor election program, there is this opportunity for candidates who participate to receive public financing funds. Okay. And if someone as a candidate receives donations from 250 Portlanders, at least, the city will match $20 contributions or up to $20 at a rate of nine to one. So a $20 donation turns into a $200 donation. So Pretty wild. Um, the idea is it encourages folks who might not otherwise feel like their donation would be impactful to participate in the process. And trust me, when you tell somebody your $20 donation turns into $200, people are really excited about it. I was just going to say, that actually sounds like a much more fun fundraising call than the kind that uh, right. other right. people running for office have to make. <laughs> right. It's it's certainly an upsell. It also is, I think, a great way of keeping big money out of local politics. If you participate in this program as a candidate, you are limited to... The size of donation you can take is capped at $350 per donor. So, you know, the joke among candidates and people who work in politics is most of politics are running for office. Most of running for office is asking for endorsements and asking for money. So that's <laughs> yeah. a lot of what it's been like so far to answer your question. And I think to the extent we're going to have a lot of candidates I'm in this early to start talking about things that I know Portlanders are really thinking a lot about right now. So in that regard, I am trying to have these conversations early and often. So as the ballot gets more crowded, I have done the work to start this dialogue about what we can do better as a city in terms of managing our addiction crisis. Awesome. Well, Tony, thank you for coming on the podcast. If folks want to learn more about your campaign or get in touch with you, where should they go? Yeah, I've got a, a new campaign website and it's www.tonyforportland.com. And you can check out uh, why I'm running, learn more about me, um, see my early endorsements. And uh, there's opportunities to get involved and support the campaign. So uh, TonyForPortland.com. Uh, please check it out. Awesome. Tony, thanks for coming on. It's great talking to you. Thanks, man. Thanks for having me.